Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina cares about a clean future. That's why they have hundreds of recipes crafted without artificial flavors or preservatives. On top of that, they are committed to using more recyclable pet food packaging. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Alorinipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 13th. Today, why the president kept Roger Stone out of prison, domestic abuse in lockdown, and a long-awaited name change. Friday night was another one of those crazy nights in the Trump administration where the expected happens, but it's unexpected and still shocking. Roger Stone was treated horribly. Roger Stone was treated very unfairly. President Trump commuted the sentence of his longtime ally, Roger Stone, who had been convicted of several counts of essentially lying to Congress to protect the president. What I did, I will tell you this. People are extremely happy because in this country, they want justice. This was a last minute intervention by the president that essentially saved Roger Stone from going to prison. He had filed all kinds of different motions and tried to delay this. But President Trump did that really at the 11th hour before Roger Stone was set to pack his bags and get ready to go to prison this week. So I'm very happy with what I did. He had a forewoman. Quiet, quiet, quiet. He had a forewoman. He had a forewoman who was... Horrendous. She should have never been on the jury. The judge should... I'm Tolu Olorunipa, and I cover the White House for The Washington Post. And remind us again, why is Roger Stone important? And what do prosecutors say that he did that got him those convictions? Well, Roger Stone is the closest link between the Trump campaign and Russia's effort to interfere with the 2016 election. He was in touch with WikiLeaks. He was in touch with who prosecutors say were cutouts for the Russian government's effort to interfere with the 2016 campaign. And he also was in touch with high-ranking members of the Trump campaign. This is a longstanding ally of President Trump, someone who has been a political advisor to Trump and his family for decades. But because he refused to cooperate with prosecutors, because he lied to investigators. It was hard for Congress and investigators to draw that link. And he essentially was just uh, given a get-out-of-jail-free card for his role in that effort. And so Roger Stone, his sentence was commuted, but he is not officially pardoned, correct? He's still considered a convicted felon. Yes, the president had the power to wipe away the charges and make him no longer a a convicted felon. He did not choose to do that. He chose to commute his sentence, which protected him from going to jail, which for Roger Stone may be the most important part of this. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Thank you for giving me the offer. Thank you for saving my life because... I don't think at my age and in my medical condition, I would have survived in a COVID-infested prison. And and you said that this commutation was pretty expected. What had President Trump telegraphed about this before in terms of his willingness to essentially make sure that Roger Stone didn't end up in prison? 
Well, the president has been railing against the Mueller probe for the better part of three years, and he has telegraphed this commutation by saying that Roger Stone was treated unfairly, that the Mueller investigators were all part of a witch hunt, that this is all a grand hoax, that this is all about getting to him and his presidency and undermining his presidency. So every time he had been asked, are you going to pardon Roger Stone? Are you going to offer some kind of clemency? He was really telegraphing the fact that he was going to use his broad presidential powers to keep Roger Stone out of prison. uh, And that's exactly what he did. And what is the reaction that we have seen so far after President Trump made this announcement? Well, among Republicans, the reaction has been relatively muted. You haven't heard very many Republican lawmakers come out and praise this commutation. You've heard a lot of them just not answer the question. We did hear from two Republicans, Senator Mitt Romney and Senator Pat Toomey. Both have said that this is not a good idea. Senator Romney used stronger language, saying that this was a clear act of corruption. Senator Senator Toomey called this a mistake. Democrats have been apoplectic over this. They have said that this is a clear instance of the president paying back one of his advisors for lying to Congress, for lying to cover up a crime on behalf of his administration. And they have really been very vocal in saying that this is another sign of President Trump thinking he's above the law. They haven't actually indicated that they would do anything about it. And because the pardon power in the presidency is so strong, there's not much they can actually do. But they are trying to use this as part of the upcoming election to say this is another reason that President Trump should not be voted back into office. I've heard a lot of comparisons so far to Richard Nixon, that even in the in the height of Watergate, that Nixon would never have dared to do something that was so blatantly corrupt as this. Yeah, this is interesting because it was done out in the open. This wasn't some sort of you know, secret deal or secret tapes that came out. Roger Stone was very clear that he was acting to protect the president. President Trump was very clear about the fact that he was thinking about pardoning Stone, and he even dangled these pardons before Stone decided to lie on his behalf. President Trump followed through on what he had been indicating and hinting for several months while Roger Stone's crimes were taking place, and Stone was rewarded for those crimes with this commutation. So you said that Democrats are planning to use this commutation as part of their messaging going into November, as a very clear demonstration of the corruption of President Trump. Do you think that message is actually going to stick, that enough people know who Roger Stone is, care about who Roger Stone is, care about his commutation, that that could have a real effect on how people are viewing whether or not they would vote for the president? I think what it does is it falls into this broader basket of chaos that the president has uh, has thrown a number of different things into, even as we're in the middle of a pandemic, even as thousands of people are dying as a result of the coronavirus, the president is focusing on offering commutations to his friends who are convicted felons. So Democrats are saying that even Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal did not go as far as pardoning or offering clemency to co-conspirators or people who are involved in that crime. And they're saying that the president is willing to go there. He's willing to commit all kinds of scandalous acts in order to protect himself, in order to protect his friends, when he should be focused on protecting the American people from the virus that's continuing to upend their lives. Clearly, part of the president's personal impetus in doing this is just wanting to keep his friend and ally out of prison. But what do you think the greater message is that the president wanted to send here? Well, we saw that message in a 643-word statement from the White House on Friday night in which the president 
used the commutation to air all his grievances about the Mueller probe. He said that he was a victim of deep state operators of the media, of Democrats who had been trying to undermine his presidency since he was sworn in. And he used this commutation to essentially reward his friends who would have stuck by him throughout this ordeal and try to lash out against some of those people who he feels have been trying to undermine his presidency. And I think that's why so many people and so many Democrats are worried about this is because not only is is this a case where President Trump is basically saying that he's trying to right this wrong that has been done to him and done to his friends and allies, but also it's a demonstration that loyalty to the president and in some cases lying for the president will ultimately be rewarded. Yeah, the president has suffered from a deficit of loyalty throughout his time in office. A lot of the people who have worked for him, who have been close to him, have flipped on him and have, in their words, have come to their senses and realized that they no longer want to defend him. They no longer want to stick by him. And because of that, I think he has felt a a need to show that there is some benefit to being loyal to him, even if it means lying on his behalf or committing crimes for him, that there will be some benefit that he will use the powers of the presidency to protect his friends and to protect those who are close to him. And we've seen the president do that uh, repeatedly. Could we get your reaction to some breaking news? The Justice Department has decided to dismiss the case against Michael Flynn. So I'm very happy for General Flynn. He was a, uh, a great warrior, and he still is a great warrior. Now, in my book, he's an even greater warrior. President said, uh, Dinesh, uh, you've been a great voice for freedom. And he said that, I got to tell you, man to man, uh, you've been screwed. And he said he just wanted me to be out there to be a bigger voice than ever, defending the principles that I believe in. And I think the Roger Stone commutation is the latest example that the president is going to take whatever steps that he can to try to show the people that have defended him and who have been close to him through the toughest ordeal of his presidency, that he will stick with them, that he will reward them, that he will use the great powers of the presidency to protect them, even if they commit crimes that are convicted by a jury of their peers. Tolu Olurunipa is a White House reporter for The Post. So I've been talking to a lot of hotlines and organizations that help victims of domestic violence. And one thing that they have all told me is that at the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic emergency, they saw an initial jump in calls. And they've been hearing from a lot of people who are worried about being stuck at home with their abusers, and especially in increasingly stressful situations where people might not be working. They might be financially stressed about how they're going to pay their bills. Um, They might have their kids at home. So there's all of these factors that are creating this perfect storm where not only do you have stressors in the home, but you also have people who feel like they can't go anywhere. They can't leave. They can't escape. They don't have work. They don't have visits with their family to take refuge in. And they're really worried about how dangerous that could become. My name is Marissa Lang, and I am a local reporter for The Washington Post. 
So when you say that there has been an increase in calls for help, how big is this increase? And what are some of the types of anecdotes or incidents that the folks that you've talked to have heard about the stuff that people are experiencing while they're stuck at home? So the National Domestic Violence Hotline said that they saw a pretty sharp increase. My name is Christina So. I'm the communications director at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. The hotline averages about 12,750 contacts per week. And in recent weeks, we've received an average of about 14,300 calls each week, which is about a 12% increase. Then it kind of leveled out to about what they were used to seeing. But local hotlines like DC Safe, which I talked to you about some of the incidents in the DC area, said that their call volume doubled in the first two weeks of the stay home order in the district. My name is Natalia Otero, and I am the co founder and executive director of DC Safe. Typically, on any given day, we would receive um, somewhere around 50 calls on our response line, and we are double. We had a spike when the mayor announced that we might be sheltering in place longer. Um, And that was the largest call volume we've had in one day. We had 102 calls on that day. People are calling for all kinds of reasons. Um, Some of them are calling about their partners getting more violent, maybe their partners being more controlling or trying to restrict their comings and goings. There's a lot of reports of people using the coronavirus pandemic as reason to control their partners. There are several places that I talked to that said they heard from women who were saying that their partners were forcing them to wash their hands over and over and over again until they were cracked and bleeding, Mm. or their partners were literally restricting them from leaving. We had a survivor reach out to us who had medical issues and required an inhaler. Their spouse wouldn't give them a ride to go get the medical attention that they needed. This abuser also limited the survivor's access to a car. There's one woman in California who called the domestic violence hotline and uh, had said that her partner had actually strangled her. And the woman on the phone talking to her, the advocate, said she could hear in this woman's voice how badly she had been hurt. But the woman was afraid to seek medical attention because she didn't want to go to a hospital where she would be surrounded by COVID-19 patients. And and it seems like there are probably a lot of different ways in which the process of finding help for people who are experiencing abuse or violence at home, that that gets a lot more complicated when you are not supposed to leave your house and when a lot of the resources that might previously have been open to you are either closed or have more of a restricted capacity because everybody else is stuck at home. Absolutely. And with domestic violence survivors, a big problem is They need to find windows of opportunity away from their abusers to seek help in the first place. So one thing that I heard from a lot of places is that they were worried about calls actually decreasing, that the increase was troubling, but not as troubling as a dramatic decrease, because that would mean that people just do not feel safe enough to even reach out and ask for assistance. So for advocacy groups and shelters who help people who are being abused, how are they adjusting to these times? Like what strategies are they putting in place to try to get people to safety, even though it's more complicated now? So like everybody, they've moved all of their non-essential staff out of the office, out of shelters. Most of them have suspended volunteer programs. So if you do not have to be there, they don't want you there. They're trying to limit the number of people they have coming and going to protect the folks who are staying in these shelters, the families who have no choice but to be there. 
We have actually been able to increase our capacity, but we are definitely finding that navigating survivors through this new world is very difficult. And so uh, aside from getting um, more calls, we are also spending a lot more time trying to navigate a survivor to a particular service. So if somebody needs housing, it's difficult to get that person housing. If someone needs mental health services, if they need, you know, emergency health, you know, whatever that looks like now has become really difficult. So a lot of what we're spending our time on is trying to figure out what this landscape looks like and trying to navigate a survivor through that. They're also helping victims plan for eventualities that might happen while they're quarantining. They call that safety planning. So a lot of what they do is not always saying, okay, you've got to get out right now because it's actually very risky and very scary to leave an abusive situation. And many, many people choose not to for a number of reasons. So what they do is they help people think through the eventualities of what could happen and try to safety plan for ways they might be able to mitigate some of the worst of that. Some of the things are really simple. They're like find ways to carve out time for yourself to get away from your abuser, whether that means can you take a bath for 30 minutes by yourself? Can you carve out some time to do yoga or meditate in a separate room that kind of gives you space? Or it could mean identifying family members who might live nearby who have an extra room that if you could shelter in if you need to, you can access. Sometimes it means... If you're going to have an argument with your partner, maybe doing it in a room that is a little less risky. Uh, If you're having an argument in the kitchen, for example, there's a lot of sharp objects that can be used in a really violent way. So maybe choosing to have a disagreement in the bedroom or the living room or somewhere that's a little less dangerous. Sometimes they're saying if you have a neighbor or a friend or someone you can trust, figuring out a code like leaving on the porch light or turning off the porch light at night that might indicate things have gotten worse and I need help. Although some of the things that maybe outlined in a safety plan may seem obvious, it's really important to remember that in moments of crisis, your brain may not function the same way as when you're calm. And having a safety plan laid out in that period of time can really help you protect yourself. Because there may be limited availability for resources like shelters, uh, may not be taking as many new intakes. Is there a concern that even with these strategies to try to help people get through this time, that you're going to end up with situations that are escalated further than they otherwise would have been because there just aren't the resources to help people and that it will result in people, women especially, getting hurt? Yeah, definitely. The big uptick that DC has seen is not coming from the victims themselves. There are victims calling for help. There was a slight uptick at the beginning, but the biggest jump is coming from emergency responders, EMTs, hospital workers, people who really only get involved and get called when things have escalated to a point where someone needs medical attention. There's probably going to be these situations where it is a tipping point in a relationship. So if there's violence within the relationship and it wouldn't have otherwise led to something more severe, there is definitely a a capacity to see more of those cases that then go from being a difficult situation 
into a more critical and maybe even physically violent situation that wouldn't have otherwise risen to that level. It's definitely the case that victims who might have the first time something happened sought some kind of help may feel that there is no help available or they may not be sure what's still open if they can go to a shelter and be safe there or if they can talk to a social worker in a way that feels safe when they're living at home with their abuser. There's a lot of access to services that might seem more difficult or more dangerous given the situation that everybody's in. Marissa Lang is a local reporter for The Post. If you or someone you know is struggling with domestic violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is available 24 hours a day in more than 200 languages. Call them at 1-800-799-SAFE. You can also text LOVEIS at 22522. And now, one more thing. So the name has been controversial for decades. This is Robert McCartney. He's a senior regional correspondent for The Post and a huge fan of the Washington, D.C. football team. But he has always had a problem with the team's name, the Washington Redskins. I wanted them to change the name, uh, but I'm a big football fan, and this has been my team since I grew up in the area. And so I basically, you know, lived with this contradiction. At a certain point, I did get rid of all of my gear, my T-shirts and sweatshirts and hats that had the name of the team on it. And I stopped flying. I used to have a, I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm really a fan. I had a flag, one of those little flags that you put on your car, you know, that, uh, that hailed the team, uh, so I stopped. I stopped using that. So now uh, the team is announced today, Monday, that it is going to retire the name and get a new one. We don't know yet what the name is going to be, but basically the the thing has come full circle. It's very clear that the timing of this decision to change the name was determined almost entirely, if not in, entirely, by the pressure from the big corporations who sponsor and have lucrative partnerships with the Washington team. So FedEx, Nike, then all, shortly afterwards, Pepsi and Bank of America, both big sponsors of the team, partners of the team, they announced uh, that they wanted a change in the name. And it was just a few days later that the team announced that it was reviewing changing the name. And now, of course, they've announced formally that they're going to change it. I think this tells us something very interesting about how social change occurs in America. You know, almost 50 years of protests against the name on moral grounds, but ultimately the thing that made the difference was the pressure from the big corporate money. When the big corporations changed their view on what was acceptable, uh, Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington team, he changed his view. 
he basically bowed to the big money pressure. Robert McCartney is a senior regional correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. For the next two weeks, we're doing a survey to learn more about who listens to this podcast. We're asking stuff like where and when and how you listen, what kinds of stories you like, and what you want more of. It helps us a ton if you fill it out. To do that, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey, one word. And as a bonus, you can enter to win a $100 gift card that you can use for all different kinds of retailers. Again, that is WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.